0: Welcome to the second part of this series called Travelling Light. I'd like to give a shout out to the folks at Pyro Baptist who are joining us in this series. So why don't we just give them a warm welcome as they welcome us into their church. So for us as a church, moving into the series of Travelling Light is a way for us to look at the book of James and to be able to own and discover or rediscover what it is that this important message brings to us as a Christian community. For decades in the early church, people didn't know what to do with the book of James. Uh, In fact, Martin Luther said, there will come a day where I'll light my fire with the book of James, simply because James talks so intently about a results-based faith, whereas Martin Luther said, look, it's all about grace. James, of course, meets us in the middle and says, this is about your faith outworking itself in real life. In other words, your faith will have An impact upon others because it's real for you and it changes you. So this week we're talking about uh, being tried and tested. Now, I like things that are tried and tested. I wouldn't sign up and go on a a plane flight in somebody's new experimental plane. You know, come along, let's fly to Sydney. I've just built this plane. Uh, Bring your sandwiches and a gallon of gas and we'll see how we'll get on. Now, I wouldn't be signing up for that and I trust you wouldn't either. In the same fashion, you want your cars to be tested so that you know the wheels don't fall off, that the engines don't break down, and if you have an accident, the whole thing doesn't fall to pieces around you. So that's perfectly normal, isn't it? You want your food to be tried and tested in some way so that you're not going to have botulism or some other disease or bacteria in your body when you eat it. You know, Welcome to my mushroom factory where you can work out which one's the mushroom and which one's the toadstool. That doesn't go down too well. We all want things that are tested. The problem being is that we don't like to be tested ourselves. Is that fair to say? We don't like to be tested ourselves because that means it's hard work for us because it invokes the need for change. Now, when we're five years old in this country, we all go off to primary school unless you're homeschooled. And this is a wonderful way in which you are sucked into a vortex which will ultimately test and try you. You're welcomed by a lovely teacher in your first year and come and meet your new friends and the teacher's lovely and mum packs you off with your lunch and you wander into this environment and you think it's all lovely. But by the time you hit 15, 16 and 17, it's completely different, isn't it? You're, you're expected to learn something. You're expected to be tested. And with the testing comes all the challenges of SWAT and essays and exams, is that right? We know this because that's what we're subject to in this country, thankfully, and it's called our education system. And we're educated through testing and trial, sometimes tribulation, depending on how how well behaved you are at school, but we all go through this testing time and that sets us up to be people who can learn and be subject to pressure as adults. That makes fair, fair sense, doesn't it? So tried and tested. Last week we looked at the subject of of wisdom. Um, We're told by James, the writer, that we should consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds. And of course, like you, I question that that, uh, comment by James. Pure joy? Surely not. How can a trial be pure joy? That just sounds like sadism or masochism of some sort, doesn't it? And Yet James tells us that if we persevere, if we push in and take advantage of the trials that we've been given, then we will be refined, and therefore we can look at a trial as pure joy because it's something that is going to grow us up, something that's going to mature our faith. James also says if you lack wisdom, you should ask, and God will give it to you generously without finding fault. In other words, he's not going to find a fault in your being and say, Because you're faulty, I'm not going to give you wisdom, which is a really good thing, isn't it? Because there's always a fault somewhere along the way, and we want God's wisdom. We need God's wisdom to make our way through. And then finally, last week, we looked at how James says not to be double-minded. Stand your ground. When you ask for something in prayer, when you have a problem to overcome, don't walk away from it. Don't be double-minded. Just face up and look to God for the answer. It's so easy to say, God, I really need this to be fixed in my life, and then to walk away and not seek the answer. You know, we change the problem, we change the dynamic. We say, Lord, I really need help with this friendship. It's not going too well. And then we go, ah, forget it, God, I'll just find another friend. That's double-mindedness. You see, persevering is what grows us up. And we all have challenges in our life. We can have health challenges. Uh, you know, we're all subject to decay, the Bible says, because we live in a fallen world. So we will have issues in our lives that are going to cause us a trial. Uh, we can have relationship problems. You know, all relationships go through difficult times. You know, you get married, but thankfully, after about 40 or 50 years, it comes right. And, and you find that those trials have caused you to mature and to grow. Is that all right? Um, and you can have financial problems, real or imagined, real or imagined. Uh, you know, because we live in the Western world, sometimes our financial problems are more imagined than they are real, and they're subject to our own imagination, sometimes vain imaginations about what we feel we deserve. But trials, nonetheless, and sometimes in those environments about finances, God is actually creating us in us a proper expectation. Of what it is that we should expect and what sort of lifestyle we should have. So, James goes on to say in verse 12, this is where we pick up from last week. He says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Okay, so we're told here that if you persevere, you will stand the test and then you will receive this crown of life. Okay, the Bible talks to us about five different crowns that you can receive, and I'm not going to go through them all, but these are crowns that result out of our life here on earth. Uh, crowns that, subject, that have been subject, caused us to be subject to um, persecution, and so we get a crown of life. This is the one that James is talking about here. So it's quite interesting that we look at what Perspective, our Christian faith is held at. There doesn't seem to be much of a bridge between this life and eternity. James here is fusing the two together, doesn't he? He says, "Look, you know what goes on here has a reward in eternity," and he seems to switch from one to the other quite easily. We we struggle with that because we see this huge, huge gap, this huge gulf between this world and the next. James doesn't see it that way, for obvious reasons. But discipline as we're being told here in terms of trial, is a is a good gift. It's a good gift. Now, I know for myself as a child, when uh, I was being disciplined, I didn't think it was a good gift. I thought it was exactly what I felt it was, and that was punishment. And did I deserve it? Well, at the time, I thought there was no justice in the world, but looking back, you found that it's probably fair enough. And of course, most of you would have felt the same way. In fact, it would be an unloving act for a parent not to discipline a child in some form or fashion. Because discipline creates guidelines, but discipline also creates challenges for us that lead to perseverance, which lead to maturity. When we're going through trials, we actually don't want to, uh, to face up to the fact that we have limitations. See, a trial will always present to you a limit. If you're doing an exam, you learn how much you've actually learned in that exam and that can be quite sobering. If you're doing some physical workout, you soon find out where your limits are. Is that fair to say? And if you're struggling in relationships, you get to the point of intolerance and everything falls to pieces. And so discipline in these areas actually is a good gift because you learn to face up what you don't know to what you don't don't know, and then you push on from there. Um, Book of Romans here, Paul says this. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Isn't it interesting how hope is that final destination after perseverance? Why? Because when you persevere and you've succeeded and you've made it through, what you develop is a collection of victories, a collection of breakthroughs. And when you've got a collection of breakthroughs in your life, that produces hope, because when the next trial comes, you can say, my memory tells me that if I persevere, I'll break through. Uh Aha. So I can have some hope about this challenge that I'm facing. I, I don't know about your life experience, but mine sort of operates a bit like this when it comes to trials, and that is, When I'm faced with a big challenge, I say to myself, deep down, I say, look, this is really hurtful, this is really hard, but this too will pass. This too will pass, and I'll be better off for the experience. I'm not at that point where I'm jumping for pure joy every time I have a challenge, but I'm learning that this too will pass when it comes to the challenges that we face. And so therefore, it produces in me hope. And I'm trusting that this is what your overall goal will be too, is that if you overcome a challenge, this too will produce in you a confidence that even though you will face difficulty, things are going to get better in the long term and for, the, for your future. So James is saying to us we get rewarded with this, this crown, a crown that talks about us having had some form of victory. My my son was um, in the military up until Christmas, and when he did his basic training, um, he said one of the things that we learnt, Dad, was that when we were at our absolute end of ourselves, when we were all absolutely wiped out, the the boss, the senior officer would come to us and say, who can go on any further? And they all go, no, we can't. And he said, we got told that now we're about halfway to what our physical ability is. And uh, everybody just shook their heads and said, no way, that can't be the case. We're absolutely wiped out. And so they'd have a meal, and then they'd get up and they'd carry on. And it was literally true. They had, had been at half, the halfway point when they were thinking they were totally exhausted. And so these trials that we face, uh, even in our everyday life, before we get to heaven, you realize that there's a crown that awaits you, some form of celebration when you break through and you find that things that you thought were impossible have now come to pass. Is that fair to say? It's a great reward, isn't it? When you look at a big hill or something like that or a big project and you put all that energy in and you start off thinking, I'm not sure I'm going to get there. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. And then you get there and you go, yeah, yeah. And that gives you hope for the next challenge that you face. Is that true? But if you give up, you give up early, you'll never know what your capacity is, and you'll never reach that level of maturity that God wants you to have. The book of Revelation says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Okay, so even in the book of Revelation, we're talking about that that final persecution, there's going to be an ongoing challenge and an ongoing level of of, of suffering that we will endure, be it this generation or a future generation. But suffering has always been a part of the Christian experience. And James is talking to those here who are being persecuted, and he speaks to us about persecution and trials, and also the book of Revelation talks to us about future trials. But uh, it's worth remembering what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is, not, that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So when you're tempted, and we'll talk about this in a little bit more in, in a few moments, but when you're tempted, what Paul is saying here is that there's a doorway. There's a doorway out. Now, the challenge is to take the doorway out sooner than later. Because as time goes on and you stay in that place of temptation, it seems like that doorway gets narrower and narrower. Okay. I mean talking to people and saying, look, why is it that you got in trouble with the police? Oh well, you know, it was just the company I kept, I suppose. Well, why did you keep that company? So you can always go back to a a root cause of why it is you did what you did. And there's always a doorway there. And the thing about it is that these temptations that we might face are all common, common things. Don't think that you're alone in the temptation that you're facing, whatever it might be. Be it a, a financial temptation, an emotional temptation, a relational temptation. All of these things are there to put you to the test, and you can overcome it by addressing it early and by acknowledging that this is not something that you suffer from alone. Other people in the world have suffered from this. The person sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, more than likely has endured something similar. And how you handle it is the most critical dynamic that God is looking for in the development of your faith, because our ability to stand is what God is looking for. You know, if you you were at the gym, and, um, and, and you stood under a, 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 a dumbbell, a weight, and you pushed up like this, and you felt the pressure of that, and then you just walked away from it. It just falls to the ground. There is no way that you can actually get stronger by doing that. But if you stand there and you hold it, and then you go down a little bit and you push back up, that's developing physical strength, isn't it? And as that goes on, it develops perseverance. And perseverance, when it is mature, produces character and then hope. Okay, So when you face that dumbbell the next time, that barbell, you look at it and you go, I can handle that. Okay, But if you felt the pressure and just walked away from it, you'd never grow. You'd never be strong. And the same it is with our spiritual life. Because what God does is he brings us to our limit, our capacity. And then he says, what are you going to do here? You're getting to the point now where you've run out of patience. What are you going to do here? You got to the point here where somebody's really disappointed you. What are you going to do now? Are you just going to drop it and walk away? Or are you going to push in and actually get a breakthrough, which is what God is wanting for you anyway? He wants to break you through the boundaries that you've set for yourself or the boundaries of your experience. But you can only do that once you're actually at the limit. And a bit like those young soldiers, they didn't, you, you wouldn't have realized that you could probably do a whole lot more than what you felt you've been capable of in the past. Uh, Mother Teresa makes an interesting comment about this, this verse here. She said, yes, I believe that God won't take me through anything more than I can handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. Yeah? I wish he didn't trust me so much. And we often feel like that, don't we? Like, oh God, this is really tough. I feel like just giving it all away, giving up, walking away from it. But that's the time when you're at your limit and that's the time when you have a breakthrough. And that's what God is wanting you to do, to have some form of breakthrough, some form of personal growth, which produces maturity. And and I'll show you what that all means at the end of the talk because James summarizes it really, really well. So back to what James is saying. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Okay, so we can see these natural patterns. One says, here's perseverance, it leads to character and that produces maturity, okay, and hope. Um, whereas we're told here that if you entertain temptation, it leads to sin, which is conceived in you, and when that is mature, it brings forth death. So you've got these challenges in front of you, but have two completely different outcomes. And of course, we're wanting to produce in our lives more perseverance, so we get more character, more maturity, and more hope. What I wanted to do this morning is to paint a picture of how There are four different quadrants, I think, of how we're challenged and tempted in our lives. And I wanted to put those into some form of perspective for you. The first one that James is just talking about here is the temptation to sin. James is saying, look, everybody has temptations. They're common, and there's a way out. But if you allow that temptation to be fully formed in you, it'll produce sin. Okay? And I just mentioned that that dumbbell illustration, that barbell illustration. If you get under it and you don't submit to it, it'll make you stronger when you push back on that temptation, won't it? Um, Things that you can be tempted to do are so obvious to all of us. Greed, lying, uh, flirting. Uh, you just, well, I don't need to name them because they're common to man and woman. Okay? They're common to all of us. All right? Um, I, I know there's little things that we, we think we can get away with. What about texting on the, in the car? You know? The text goes off. I know I've been caught on this one before. The text goes off and the phone's just sitting there. And you go, quick look. Are you going to be home soon? All I have to do is go, yep. So, yep. Now, obviously I haven't died in a car accident, but I'm tempting fate, aren't I? It's a dumb thing to do, but that's what I'm trying to describe to you here. There are temptations all around us, okay? And we are all subject to this temptation because we are fallen characters, Okay, our character is fallen. It's broken. The second thing I want to raise with you is, uh, is evil. This is another way in which um, sin, temptation, and death comes into our life. That's a really good story or a good illustration, a sad story, in 2 Samuel 13. This is a story of one of King David's sons called Amnon, and his relationship with his half-sister, Tamar. The story is quite involved, and it's explained to us at some length. But Amnon plotted to have sex with his sister because she was so beautiful, his half-sister. Ooh, that's right. <laughs> Glad someone said the obvious. Okay. Um, and so the story explains how he plotted to, f- to have his way with her in her bedroom. Okay? And then the story tells us that after the event, after he raped her, it said that he hated her, he despised her in his heart as much as he had loved her before he raped her. So that is a perfect definition of what lust looks like. Okay? So here is evil being plotted and planned and outworked in a situation of sexual molestation, rape. Okay? And ultimately, Amnon pays for that with his life. But this is evil. This is pure evil. And Tamar is the victim of this pure act of evil. Okay, So we can, we can understand evil relatively well. Okay, The next one I want to talk about is misfortune. In the Greek and Roman days, there was a god called Fortuna, a goddess actually, And the whole cult around worship of Fortuna is that you would go to the temple and you would pay money or you'd make a sacrifice of some sort with the goal that fortune or Fortuna would smile upon you. Okay, so pretty simple arrangement, really, isn't it? Make a sacrifice and then you look for good fortune to smile upon you. This is where we get the word fortune, and in this case, misfortune. And I've put in there the story about the Tower of Siloam. But that's actually a two-part story, and I just want to read to you a little bit about it because I didn't put the Scriptures up here, but I think it's important to hear this, that Jesus is addressing this challenge amongst the Jews of the day. They had this mindset that if things went badly for you, clearly you must have sinned. Okay, pretty, pretty simple theology, really. If life went bad, you're a bad person. If life went, life went good, you're a good person bit simplistic. And Jesus is addressing this. And I read it to you from uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. It said here, Now there was some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans, those are the people of the area, whose blood Pilate, he's the, uh, the Lord over that area, really, had mixed with their sacrifices. Now this is a very poetic way of saying some Galileans got slaughtered in the temple. Okay, So they were in the temple making worship sacrifices to God. And some soldiers came in and put them to the sword. So their blood was mixed with the blood of the sacrifices. You can see the, that sort of artistic way of saying they were slaughtered. And so the argument was, or the question was, how come they died? What had they done wrong to deserve this? Particularly given that they were in the house of God when it happened. Okay? So Jesus picks up this conversation and then he goes on to say, "Um, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you not. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So what he's saying is, let's look at a bigger picture here. They died, but I'm here to talk about eternal life. Okay? And that's a greater reality than the one that these folks experienced in the temple the death they had in the temple. And so Jesus is raising the conversation, but he's raising the dynamic in such a way that he's saying, you've got to think of of eternity. You've got to think of the big picture of life. And then he raises a further argument equal to their argument to prove the point. And he says this, I tell you, um, did those those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? So the folks Jesus was talking to were talking about those who died in the temple. Jesus was saying, let me tell you another story, which we all know. Eighteen people were sitting, literally having lunch, as the historians tell us, under a tower. And the tower fell over for some reason, and those people all died. Were they more guilty of sin than anybody else? No, they weren't. They suffered misfortune. Misfortune and we know what misfortune looks like it's somebody in the wrong place at the wrong time okay how many of you know of somebody who suffered misfortune wrong place wrong time there was a death on friday night up above the willow river road there uh, about 7:15 7:30 last night i don't know the details but i suspect it's a little bit of wrong person wrong wrong place wrong time and uh, a 70 year old man was killed so that's misfortune. And then there's this final one here I want to talk about, and that's the result of living in a broken or a fallen world. I've talked a lot about this in this last year because I think it's a really important thing to make sure that our faith is well and truly informed about this. But sickness happens. We can't explain it. It doesn't mean you're a, you're a, you're a worse sinner than anybody else. It just happens. And yesterday, as it happens, we had a a funeral here for Christine Gilmore, who's been in the life of the church for over 20 years. And she died of motor neuron disease, a disease that the medical fraternity don't know how it happens, how you get it, and they can't cure it. It was a fantastic send-off, just absolutely wonderful with her seven children celebrating her life. It It was a beautiful experience. But she has suffered from the fact that we live in a fallen world. Now, look, um, for the purposes of your small groups, which I know a lot of you are involved in, I've gone and taken this this slide and we've had it printed out, okay, just for a a starter for 10 during your small group discussions. Um, But in the middle here is the vital question that always surrounds this, and that is the question about the goodness of God. Where is God? Where is God When I'm being tempted, that's what James is answering for us. Well, he says, no, look, God's not the one who tempts you. It's actually your fallen nature. You've got enough capacity within yourself to actually generate enough evil thoughts or evil ways to deal with that need to be dealt with. And, uh, And when it comes to somebody's free will, like Amnon, we're subject to other people's evil. Misfortune, we live in a world where stuff happens. We build towers. We have wars. These are the result of our own free will. And then we live in a broken world, so sickness and death ultimately kicks in at some point. And so these are the things that are surrounding us in our life, but in the midst of it all, we find that the goodness of God is challenged by these things. James is wanting to say to us, this is not about the goodness of God. We can't challenge the goodness of God because of these things. We live in a broken, messed up world where there's free will and we're subject to disease and decay. And if we're ever concerned about the goodness of God, the most compelling thing that the Scriptures leave us with is a picture of the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And I know for myself, when I'm going through a difficult time, when something just seems to make no sense to me and I really can easily doubt the goodness of God, I look at the bigger picture and I go, yeah, but Christ sent his son to die for me. Okay? My life is a trial. Things are bad. They're difficult. I don't understand it. But what I do know is that if God sent his only son for Jesus to willingly die for my sin, for my eternal uh, place and position, then it's not for me to doubt this good God, is it? It doesn't make sense. My two and a half inches or less of gray matter is not going to work it all out. But I see this powerful image of the cross. And that tells me that God is good. James 1, 13 to 15 says, "'Let no one say when he is tempted, "'I am tempted by God. "'For God cannot be tempted with evil, "'and he himself tempts no one. "'But each person is tempted when he is lured "'and enticed by his own desire. "'Then desire, when it has conceived, "'brings birth to sin.' And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Realizing and owning our own capacity to sin is the first step to avoiding it. Small temptations lead us into evil. It's really, really easy to think that we would never do that. Yeah? I hear stories about... Ministers around the world or in New Zealand and they get into some sort of moral failure of some sort. And uh, I have long, long, long since ever said I'd never do that. I've said, there I go but for the grace of God. And I remind myself that whatever somebody has failed at, I too could fail at that. Because the moment that I let my guard down and think that I've got a moral superiority or some level of stability above and beyond my brothers and sisters in Christ, that's the moment I become vulnerable. And I'd much rather walk in a posture of humility and say, that could be me, but for the grace of God, that will give me the ability to be alert and to be aware of the challenges that I face and not to think more highly of myself than I ought to. I've seen wonderful men and wonderful women fail, as you have too. And so... Realising our own capacity for evil and sin is really, really important. When I was at Baptist College, our um, principal, Brian Smith, led us through a discussion one time, and he painted a picture for us, of uh, a pretend picture, and he injected himself into it, a story of Nazi Germany. And he created a story of situation and circumstances, where he painted himself into the story to the point where he was now a prison guard at a concentration camp willingly participating in the murder of all those people, Jews and and and, uh, and those who are unwell and infirm and the aged. And what he said is, I too have the capacity to do what we think is pure evil. And for me and for all my classmates at the time, we went, you're a bad guy. No, we didn't. We realize that, yeah, we too all have this capacity. We all have broken sinful natures. And so we need to guard ourselves from situations getting out of control where that seed of of, uh, evil gets a hold of us and grows within us to the point where we're doing something that we just never thought we were capable of. And situations and circumstances can create that, can't they? We're wise to this. Um, Romans chapter 7 tells us the same thing in very, very simple terms. It says, Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. How many of you have been there? Yeah. I don't need this extra helping at Christmas pudding. Oh, I'm going to hate myself, but I'm going to eat it anyway. Yeah? Or worse. Or worse. The Amnon scenario. We're lust, and then you ultimately hate what you've done. Our behaviors are irrational when compared to our commitments. Isn't that true? Like, we might be really, really committed to our family, and we want to provide for them. But, man, I'm going to tell my boss a piece of my mind. He's been asking for it, so I'm going to let him have it. And sure enough, you let him have it, and then you'll find somehow that you haven't got a job the following day. So the desire of serving your family has now been lost by an irrational act of anger and frustration rather than sitting down and working through a problem in a mature way. So we end up with our rational behaviours being subject to uh, this illogical process that is called temptation and sin. And finally, James says this. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. A couple of years ago, Michaela and I, um, having built a house, put some fruit trees on one part of the section. And uh, they all turned up with their, their leaves and their labels, and we planted them. And As winter comes along, the leaves will blow off, and the labels will perish and disappear. So around about August, we're standing there looking at these sticks. Firstly, hoping that the sticks are still alive, because you can't tell. And secondly, having no idea what plant was what. We had a plum tree, a pear tree, a nectarine tree, um, a peach tree, and I think something called a peacherine, which was sort of a combination of two. Sounds like genetic modification to me, but... They taste good. Um, And and we didn't have a clue what they were until spring comes. And then the the, the leaves start to appear. And we still didn't have an idea which was which. Okay? And not until the fruit comes. And you go, now we know that's the plum, that's the pear, that's the, the nectarine. What James is saying to us here is that we are being created into a kind of first fruits. And first fruits, he's referring to as a gift here. Whenever somebody would. Bring a sacrifice into the temple. There was a definition between your first fruits. It was the first crop of a har- first part of a harvest, okay? And that first fruit was taken and presented in the temple as a-, a thank offering to God. James is saying that we are in the process of being refined by temptation, by trial, through perseverance, creating maturity and hope, so that we might be God's first fruits. He's saying, "Look, I'm creating a whole new humanity here." Perseverance, sorry, perseverance is all part of it because you're being created into the image of Jesus. So the whole goal that James is talking about in our trial is that we become a first fruits of something completely new, something completely different, that people would be able to say, look at what happens when you're a follower of Jesus. Look at how lives change. Look at how challenges and temptations are overcome and turned into something positive. Look at how these people live under persecution. Look at how they treat one another with love and respect and kindness. Look how they mutually respect and love and adore the person of Jesus. So we become the first fruits. We are created into something different than what the world would say you should be and shall be. And for us, that is why these temptations and these challenges that we face should be counted as pure joy. Because we're being shaped into that first fruits dynamic of being something more like Jesus. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we we give you thanks for scripture, which in this case today just looks like a mirror a mirror of our own human experience where we are tried and tested and sometimes in very surprising ways. And yet these are opportunities for us to break down the walls that have held us, that have restrained us, that have limited us when we think that our capacity is at a certain point, Lord, you, you test us and we grow and we push out those, those boundaries. We break down those walls that have pre- previously held us as a certain character type or with a certain amount of patience or a certain amount of love or a certain amount of perseverance. And we grow because you love us and you discipline us and we're subject to these challenges but we turn them into gold because you want us to to change. And it's fantastic, Lord, that we would see ourselves, as you do, as a kind of first fruits, a, a new prototype been tried and tested, a prototype that works, and it's deeply, deeply connected to Jesus because he's our source, he's our strength, and he makes the trials in our life something that we can, we can look to and smile and say, hey, I'm going to be shaped into the person of Jesus in a greater way because of this challenge that's in front of me. And so God, we rejoice with James because he saw what it is sometimes it takes a lifetime for us to see. That is, the challenges that we face might mean we're only, we're only halfway through the journey because we have a capacity for more. So God, in whatever trial we are facing, I just want to pray, Lord, that you'd be powerful and present, that people here would commit their way to you, to look at those challenges in the eye and say, what would Jesus do? And how can I grow through this? How can I lead this process through in such a way that my character has changed and the end result is hope? God, we we just invite you to be a part of those difficult times in our lives and to remind us that your love is never ceasing and that you'll never forsake us and you'll never leave us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.